how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 395, where I speak with Leslie Patterson, the co-screenwriter for the Oscar-nominated screenplay All Quiet on the Western Front, the new Netflix film. In this interview, we talk about the long journey to get this movie made. She bought the rights in 2006 as a, quote, no-name writer, and how she worked with her partner to get this made, what it means to put yourself in their shoes, getting into the German perspective for this film. How to educate the audience on World War One and some other problems that most people were not aware of for movies like this. And finally, some common problems in screenplays. What are some big mistakes people make? And her last bits of advice for being very persistent with a film like this. You can also find this interview on Creative Screenwriting's website, and we'll be covering it in our episode three of the Creative Screenwriting YouTube series by the same name. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've always been creative since I was pretty young, right? I was an athlete and a dancer. So like a rugby player and a ballet dancer all at the same time. So it started very young. Um, and then I actually studied my undergraduate in drama and English. Uh, and then my graduate studies in theatre and film at San Diego State in California when I moved out there. So, I mean, I always knew I wanted to get into film, but when you're a, a a wee girl from Scotland you don't really do you know what I mean it's like okay how does that translate um so yeah so I think I just that's why I studied it like I, I love the theory of storytelling um and I loved every aspect of the world um and I started off doing a little bit of acting but I was always kind of dabbling in everything producing costume design all of that um and I kind of came to writing a little bit later um, really, it wasn't until I met my, my partner on this project, uh, Ian, um, when he told me, listen, if you if you want to be able to act, you have to write and produce your own films. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's kind of when I got into the writing side of things. But I'd actually read the novel when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a gorgeous novel, right? Very poetic and a lot of the themes in it I really resonated with. Um, so, yeah, so it was kind of like a, a sort of curious way into the industry. Um, and obviously, at the same time, I was being a professional triathlete. So it was just kind of like, yeah, lots going on and trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go in. So for people who are listening to this and, and they can't manage to get a workout routine or write a screenplay, <laughs> where do you, where do you sort of balance your time? Maybe just to kind of start. I mean, I imagine you maybe get up early or, or do something late or how do you kind of balance that? I guess up early. I'm an early person. Not everybody is, but we do know that, you know, my, my husband's a psychologist um, and he talks a lot about the neuroscience of brain training. And we've written a book together about these kind of things, which you can get, by the way, it's called The Brave Athlete. Um, and you actually have more motivation in the morning because a part of your brain that processes uh, sort of pain, essentially, emotional and physical pain, that kind of tires out, if you will, like a muscle as the day goes on. So 
often people tend to be more creative in the morning. Um, but for me, it's about kind of um, slicing things up into small chunks to make them manageable. And, re- and that, that's in training. It's an exercise as well as it's in screenwriting or filmmaking, because often if we look at the whole, it's so overwhelming that we never even bother starting. Right. Um, so if you really break it up, what, what happens curiously in your brain is when you achieve that small thing, you get a little uh, surge of dopamine in your brain. And that actually, we know, uh, uh, creates motivation to do the next thing. Hmm. So instead of thinking about the whole, break it down into small bits. And it can be really small, like even because we have a coaching business as well, even when we coach athletes, we start them off with very, very small uh, uh, programs. You know, it might even be, hey, listen, you know what? Tomorrow morning, you're going to go walk around the block. And that's it. That's your tick in the box. Then tomorrow, you're going to jog for two minutes of that block. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, you're going to jog for three minutes of that block. And you kind of you kind of build those bricks like that. And similarly with screenwriting, if you looked at, oh, my God, I've got to write a whole script. Like, <laughs> what the heck? Like, are you kidding me? Like, where'd I go with that? Um, so, yeah, it really is, is, is kind of as simple as that. <laughs> Before we kind of move uh, into the script, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Some of that later in the day reminds me of the, the term decision fatigue. You kind of run out of the, the choice later in the day. It also seems like you'd have to maybe subtract some things first in order to add. I mean, there's so much cheap dopamine in life from social media and TV and all these things like that. It seems like cutting away some things would make it actually easier to realign the brain a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's where certainly getting outside and taking yeah. exercise like activity, we know that it actually changes your being brain chemistry as well, because certainly if you're out walking or you're out cycling and you're moving through space, your eyes track from side to side and it sends a message to the part of your brain mm. um, that, that processes fear and it quietens it down. Wow. Um, and that's why, you know, getting up, seeing sunlight uh, first thing in the morning, just going for a walk, even if it's around the block. Like I was speaking, I, I, I you know, did a writer's panel with Todd Field and all the big names, right, which was totally shocking for me and an amazing experience. But um, and Tony Kushner as well. And Todd Field actually said he walks for five miles every day. And if he doesn't walk, he doesn't write. Wow. So that was pretty profound for me um, to hear that. So, yeah, so for sure. Um, and I think as well, giving yourself targets, right? I think we are all addicted to our phones and social media. So when you are in that writing space, you know, have a... Um, have, have a schedule, have a system, have a routine. It's all about routine. Your brain loves routine, but create that routine for success. So mm. by that, I mean, um, break your day up. Okay, so you're going to get up in the morning, you're allowed your cup of coffee. But before you have your cup of coffee, you're going to pair that with some kind of habit. Walk mm. around the block. You're going to do one walk around the block, then you get your coffee. Then you're maybe going to set up your day. You answer your emails first. You give yourself that 45 minutes. And then you say, okay, I'm going to write. How long am I going to write for? What am I going to achieve? And you really break it down and you give yourself rewards along the way. And you say, okay, if I, you know, write with all my social media off for an hour, I get 10 minutes of of anything I want, anything. Mm -hmm. And you kind of break the day up like that. So you have to give yourself little 
little hits of dopamine along the way to keep you going. Little things of motivation. Hmm. So, assuming uh, with with some of that already in place and having a, a positive environment in which to write and getting up early and everything else, where did you begin this undertaking? I think you mentioned Ian kind of brought it to you, but it's still pretty daunting. Um, what were some logistics of your process? Who pitched the idea to you, or did you come up with it, or like how did you kind of get involved with the adaptation? Yeah, so it was really interesting because, as I say, I read the book in, in school, and Ian uh, was from a military background; he knew of it, and they had a, a a promotion of the of the novel on at a local bookstore in Los Angeles, and we both kind of picked it up because we like to read. And we're like, you know what? Nobody's done an adaptation of this for quite a while, mm. and you know, it's kind of the right time. We thought the right time sixteen years ago, um, and so we're kind of mavericks, as you can tell by my sporting background. And so, um, he's a journalist, and he looked into who had the rights, and nobody did, which mm. was pretty shocking to us. So we then embarked on getting the rights, uh, the auction to the rights of the novel, um, getting a lawyer on board, using our savings to, to pay for that. And it, it started to interrupt. Um, for those who are yeah. not familiar, like the book came out in like 29. So it's almost there where it's in the copyright. Like it's pretty close, right? It's somewhere yeah, around it's that 100, era. It's 100 years. Okay. But don't forget, we, we auctioned this in 2006. Okay. okay. So it was still a ways away from that. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, you have to have a contract with, it was actually New York University Press that represented the author. um, And then you have to pay a certain amount of money. And normally you have to renew that option every year um, or every 18 months or something like that. So you have to renegotiate plus pay more money. Um, So that's another journey. And on, you know onto itself and so once all that was sorted which was no mean feat in itself you know no name writers managing to acquire the option to a massive title that was bizarre in itself and then it's okay how what the hell do you do now (laughs) (laughs) you know and of course I I had my undergraduate and graduate studies in, in 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 this area so I had a keen sense and Ian had written a lot but Ultimately, it was kind of two twofold. One was to read the novel multiple times, buy many copies, rip it up, put it on the wall, figure out what scenes we wanted to do, um, and then get to the essence of what the author was trying to say. What are the main? What's the main thematic premise of it? What are the things we really want to track on? And what are the problems in the novel in terms of translating that cinematically? And then with that kind of information, we did a lot of research. Um, we read a lot of trench war diaries. We got into the, you know, the history of World War One and the context of it. Because one of our biggest issues with a novel, uh, not an issue so much as how you translate it cinematically, uh, is the fact that it's like excerpts of a diary. So it's quite meandering um, and ethereal. So we felt we needed some kind of dramatic through line to carry us uh, through the story. And that's when, through research, we found this signing of the armistice, the reparations that Germany had to pay, the last six hours of the war, like a ticking clock, mm-hmm. dramatic tension, juxtaposition uh, between the upper brass and the everyman. But all the while, that story actually encapsulated the themes of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when we knew we had something kind of special. Because ultimately, an adaptation is something whereby 
you take the essence of the material and then you look at it through the lens with which you live. And that was written before World War II, of course. Mm. They had no knowledge of what happened, but now we do. And it's something that we don't learn. Uh, certainly as an ally, as a Brit, as an American, uh, we really don't know the other side. And that's what was so fascinating about this, to put yourself in the other shoes. So with all of that information, we then sort of embarked on, okay, what, what, how would we put these pieces together? And, you know, I mean, it takes multiple drafts, as everyone knows, to, to get to something that you feel good about, where outside people that you, you know, in your team, so to speak, that you believe in, sort of say, yeah, this is ready. Um, and that took about two years to get to that point. Uh, and then, of course, it was, okay, what the fuck now? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so it really was kind of like, okay, how do we package this? How do we put this together? Um, and that's why we're also executive producers on the project too, because we went through many iterations of, of uh, producers on, producers off, going to jail, uh, coming back on, money's on, money, us, not us going to jail, them going to jail. Um, money's on, money's off, uh, different cast, different crew, uh, different directors you know understanding certainly when we uh, uh, embarked on this we could not have raised the finance for a german-speaking language film 16 years ago the landscape could not have supported it then but things changed you know parasite won for best picture as well as best foreign 1917 came along saying that world war one was something people were interested in mm -hmm. and the streamers came along which it was all about local language content. So um, all of a sudden, you know, that opportunity, you know, came with uh, Malta and Edward when they got a hold of our script uh, and came to us and said, we really like your script. We'd love to do this in German. And we said, amazing. That's exactly what it should be. Um, and it's funny, you've gone through this big journey with all of these different players on and off. And thinking all along, like, I think this is right. Could this be right? Fingers crossed. And then all of a sudden, when you get a team like that, and you're like, I know this is right. Mm. Um, and that was a big learning curve too. You know, if something doesn't feel quite right, probably isn't. <laughs> right. Well, so, yeah, like you said, there were so many World War II films before this, a lot of Vietnam films. There's less about World War One and some of the other ones. Do you feel like you're having to explain cultural aspects and, and things like that that the audience is not already coming with? Do you feel like you have to get all those things right in the first 20 pages or so? Yeah, definitely. I think ultimately it's the world, right? Yeah. Because uh, World War One is such a unique world. Trench warfare is this alien landscape. And that's why we felt it was really important to start the film off out in the battlefield to set the scene. Okay, this is what you're going to be in for here as an audience member. Uh, but the hardest thing about that, of course, was um, the fact that we wanted to actually see Paul sign up, see our main character, our protagonist sign up. Yeah. How would we get from the battlefield to him? And right. that's where we came up with the, the uniform being the transition piece. Uh, you know, uh, and coming from the dead soldier, getting sewn up, getting washed. We felt like that at its core was the entire message of the film. The uniforms were more than the man's. Mm. 
I, when I, going in, I hadn't maybe I just seen the trailer. I was curious if oh, were they going to do that the whole film? I wasn't sure if they were going to do something completely different. But tell me a little bit more about that opening. Do you kind of thinking back on it where he kind of goes back for a friend and he's scared and so brutal? It's almost like a mini version of what we're about to see. Tell me a little bit about writing that first opening scene. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because obviously an opening is so key, right? And as I say, we wanted to start out in the battlefield, but yet we, we needed to see Paul in his patriotic fervor yeah. sign up with his buddies. We needed to see his innocence, and that was only possible to see him back home. Um, and it, I was out on a run one day because a lot of my ideas come when I'm exercising, and we know why, because of the brain, right? <laughs> um, and um, I just watched Schindler's List hmm. and the girl with the red coat in that sequence and it just kind of spawned this idea. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if, and, you know, you just kind of build on it, right? Um, and that's where that idea came from. And it's funny because at the time I knew, I, I actually thought to myself, even if the rest of our script is total shite, that this is an Oscar-worthy opening. I just sort of, <laughs> I just, I'm not joking. I just sort of felt like that. And, it, you know, I mean, as a, as a fellow writer, you know, we doubt ourselves so much. So when you have a good idea and you really know it, but yeah. like, you put that stake in the sand, you say, this is a good idea. Tell me a little more about, so after that scene, we're moving to the the kind of scene of innocence. But the other thing there, I mean, any any audience member kind of knows war is hell. That's kind of the the normal view. But it seems like it's even a difference here between... They really don't know what they're about to see in terms of some of the chemical aspects and the tanks. So talk about trying to introduce these things that um, how you can make the characters truly fearful in those moments, even though we as an audience have seen them in other films, uh, but it's, it's quite different in World War One. So I think what was important to set up their innocence um, and how do you do that? And I think um, I think really that was the way it's leaving enough room in the script for the director to create that vision, mm -hmm. which is hard to do as a writer sometimes. But because we had a co-writer in Ed, right, he had that strong vision. He knew how he was going to shoot that to make it mm -hmm. believable and impactful. And there's so much energy and joy in that scene with the headmaster. It is so palpable. And that comes down to casting, it comes down to, you know, the colour palette, it comes down to the edit, all of these things. Um, and so with that innocence, um, how we what what we wanted to give a sense of is that these young lads, they're going to get shot as soon as they get there. Hmm. But the only training that they're going to have is, is literally on the truck, on the way to the front. So as an audience member, you know what's coming. You've yeah. seen the battlefield. So you're kind of, you're, you're observing these young men with dread, knowing the foreboding, knowing what's about to come. And I think that that, that sets it up emotionally, mm -hmm. the audience. Um, and then, of course, um, when they get there, just the, 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 the shock and it's such an alien world to them. Unlike, you know, almost like nowadays, we're, we're, we're sort of numb to anything. So we've seen everything, uh, whether it's through social media, whether it's through papers, whether it's through film or content. It's like, how can we shock anymore? Hmm. And I think that, that, again, the way that it was shot, these 
when the tanks are coming towards them, you know, the sound design, the music, the, 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 these, and it's like, they were like animals, you know, the camera motion, all of that. I mean, of course you're going to give a sense of that in the writing, but it comes together in, in how it's, how it's shot, how it's edited. Um, and it was interesting because Ed talks a lot about how when he when he when he was explaining to Walker what he wanted, he said I wanted with the with the with the, with the music, he said I want to um, destroy the images, mm. and that's exactly what he did. And so I think with all of those aspects of the layering, like the sound design, when when the sound designs guy, you know, in talking to them, they discussed very much less about is this sound real and more does it have the right emotional impact mm. on the audience right so you know that 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 was fascinating to me so again all of these layering aspects cause these situations to be so immediate and so impactful on an audience um that that it doesn't feel like it's something you've seen before right so just to kind of summarize for those listening, uh, you kind of you wrote this with Egan, and then Ed came in as the writer director and kind of um, left some room open for him as well. I imagine you've read hundreds of scripts as a producer. What's a common problem people have? Like I've I've talked to a lot of directors who hate seeing like excessive action or some of those yes. things. Like what are some other mistakes that people commonly yep. make with scripts? Um, uh, uh, staying too long in a scene. Hmm. So, you know, come in late, leave early. Um, trying to say too much. You know, the quiet moments are good. Less is more. Um, just the moments that Ed chooses to hang on is really, is really interesting. Um, he gives room for the viewer to just live in a moment. Mm-hmm. And so not always pushing through as a screenwriter and feeling like you have to say and do everything. You've got to leave room for that interpretation, for the actor to bring to the table something, for the director to bring something. Um, but at the same time, imbuing every scene with a gravitas where you have the sense of the scene, but you're not necessarily spelling it out. Do you feel like um, you've been working on this for decades? Is there something beyond the script that you kind of took with you? Did you make a design book or a pitch deck or a lookbook? Or or is it just more about having conversations with people to see who aligns with your vision? Um, a lot of photographs, to be honest. Um, I think they were the things that really motivate us. Two, two things, photographs and uh, letters and trench diary, diaries. Hmm. Um they always sort of seem to encapsulate the, uh, the the emotion of what we were trying to get after. So we utilized, we, we had big boards, vision boards with pictures all over them that we would take to directors and, and, and other producers. Tell me a little about um, sticking with something this long that is just so bleak and the bleak, there is joy in the movie as well, but the bleakness and the grief is kind of repetitive as, as it would be in any war. I imagine that's part of the reason behind it. Um, I'm sure running helps, but some other things to help you kind of get in and out of that or stay with something that can be a little bit darker for this long to write it and stick with it. For me, it was always, um, 
you know, I've grown up in towns where I'm surrounded by um, monuments with names all over them of the men that lost their lives. And there's a responsibility to tell that story so that we can raise a discourse and have an impact. So I think that that was the motivating factor that kept me going through the darkness. Um, because you feel like you just have to tell the story. Um, for I, I just can't even imagine what the mothers, the daughters, the wives, like your entire town is decimated. There's no men left. Like how? What must that have been like? So just to put yourself in 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 those shoes is enough of a motivation to keep pushing forward to tell the story. So after all these years, um, you put all this work into it. You've gotten some praise for it. You've gotten the, the nomination now. Congratulations on that. Um, has it shifted your your thinking at all about what's next? Do you want to write more movies? You want to focus more on producing, or is it, are you kind of in the moment for for the time being? Say both. Like trying to be in the moment because everyone's like, enjoy it, enjoy it. You never know when you'll get it again. I'm like, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but it would be a combination of writing and producing because I really love the collaboration process and I love having some agency about where your story is going to go. And helping to mold that. Um, I don't want to control it, but I love playing a role in it in a vision and um, maybe directing down the line, who knows. But we have a lot of projects now, and um, we have three that we've written. My husband and I write exclusively and produce together. We have three projects we've already written and various other ones we're developing. So for us, I think it ultimately is about working with good people, mm-hmm. people we like, we trust, and the collaboration. Can you give us some more advice maybe about writing with a partner? Like I would, a lot of the partners I've talked to, they um, they have similar tastes. If it's fiction, if it's books, it can be a little bit different. But do you kind of just tell me about what you what you appreciate about or like about it? I imagine it's nice to have that sounding board, but any other like pros and cons to writing with a partner? So I think finding a partner where you're both aligned on the types of material that you like um, I now work with my husband. I no longer work with Ian because he struggled, in fact, because we had very different approaches. We got through it, uh, but my husband did help uh, during that process with All Quiet, even although he's uncredited. Um, but for me and my husband, we have very different skills. So I'm very much story architecture, mm-hmm. uh, character arc, thematic essence, the macro. He's very much the weeds. Um, so I'll often come with concepts, beat out stories, beat out scenes, look at the rhythm of how things are fitting together, give them a scene with an outline and say, okay, have at it, let, let your head go. And then he'll bah, 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 and, you know, type away and then give me something and then I edit it. And that's how we work. So it's been really effective. Any other, we're almost out of time, just uh, any other bits of advice about persistence, which is something I, I think you're you're pretty great at here. So any other just for yeah. those that can't finish that first script or whatever it is, whatever they, or they can't get a workout routine, uh, just some, maybe some more mental advice there. Stay true to your why. Know why it's important to you. Why are you doing this? Why are you telling this story? And um, why are you a screenwriter? And I think if you focus on the mastery of the craft rather than the outcome, so commitment, 100% effort and attitude to every small little piece, then that's a massive success. And that, you piece all those together like a little brick house, 
and that's what's going to bring you the success in the end Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new chorus called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.